Welcome back to the Guns for Hire podcast. I'm Ali Ibrahimi, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. This is episode 10 of the first season of our show dedicated to mercenaries. Today, we're asking whether there's a mercenary dimension to the war in Gaza. The Middle East continues to tremble after Hamas's surprise attack on October the 7th, which inflicted a devastating trauma upon the Israeli people. The raid into southern Israel involved cold-blooded murder, decapitation, and rape, killing 1,140 people, most of whom were ordinary civilians, many of whom were children. Israel's retaliation has seen Hamas's violence against innocents and raised it. The scale of the strikes, the targets selected, and the weaponry used have combined to create a death rate with few precedents in this century. 22,185 Palestinians have been killed in three months, the overwhelming majority of them women, children, and infants. The humanitarian catastrophe has led the UN to warn that half of Gazans are at risk of starving. As a result, the region is convulsing. Since October the 7th, militias in Iraq and Syria have conducted more than 100 attacks on US military bases. In Lebanon, cross-border strikes between the militant group Hezbollah and the Israeli Defense Forces have forced more than 150,000 people to flee their homes. The Yemeni Houthi movement has used drones to fire on commercial vessels in the Red Sea that they say are linked to Israel. Israel has bombed senior Iranian officials deep into Syria. And in recent days, an Israeli drone killed the deputy Hamas chief in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. Amidst this gathering storm, in November, the Wall Street Journal and CNN reported that the Wagner Group was planning to provide Hezbollah in Lebanon with a Russian-made missile defense system. The Wagner Group has been in Syria since 2015 as part of Russia's rescue of the Assad regime from its Arab Spring Revolution. Intercepted communications between Assad, Hezbollah and Wagner personnel indicated that a surface-to-air SA-22 missile system originally provided by Russia to Assad in Syria, would be transferred to Hezbollah in Lebanon by Wagner. A missile system like this would help Hezbollah to fully open a new front in the war on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, should it choose to do so. Joining us to assess these claims and to make sense of the wider volatility is the expert on Iraq, Iran and allied groups, Renard Mansour. Renard is the director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. He's also a senior research fellow at the American University of Iraq, Soleimani, a research fellow at the Cambridge Security Initiative at Cambridge University, and a senior research fellow at the Iraq Institute for Strategic Studies. Renard previously taught the international relations of the Middle East at the LSE, and before that at Cambridge, where he also received his PhD. Renard has published widely on armed groups and hybrid actors in the Middle East and co-authored Once Upon a Time in Iraq with James Blumel. The book is a companion to the BAFTA award-winning B-52 
BBC documentary series, also called Once Upon a Time in Iraq, which was released to wide acclaim in 2020. Renard, I follow your work closely, but you're one of only a few guests on the show that I don't already know. So can you start by telling us, telling me a little bit about where you grew up and where you're from and, and what brought you into research? Likewise, Alia, it's a pleasure to finally be in touch and thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. My research focuses primarily on Iraq uh, and the region, the Middle East, and that it really does stem from that question of where I grew up and who I am and identity as someone who comes from the region, who grew up partly in the region and also outside in, in, in Canada and who studied, you know, universities outside both in Canada and the United Kingdom, but always had not just a family link and a personal link, but from that, a sort of interest and a curiosity of, of where I came from. Um, my father is Iraqi and I grew up you know, more specifically in a household that you could call a household that was in opposition to the Saddam Hussein regime. So I grew up with many of these figures who mm-hmm. would, after 2003, go back to Iraq and lead it. And mm-hmm. my political consciousness and trying to understand, you know, my worldview really is, is, is shaped by that moment, by that complete mismatch uh, from these people, these elders at the time when, you know, speaking about democracy and bringing down a dictatorship, immediately turning into another form of increasingly authoritarian rule with corruption and everything that we know of Iraq now over 20 years since. Um, So that question led me to want to study politics, sociology, international relations, and has, I think, driven me to where I am today, which is a researcher at a think tank, a policy think tank, trying to do both academic work, but also ensure that it speaks to policies on the region, on Iraq and and, and other countries where there are lessons that could be uh, useful. Mm-hmm. So how old were you in 2003 during the invasion? Oh, I was young. I was uh, in high school. I'm not trying to date you. I just... No, no, no. no. <laughs> I was in high school. And I remember right. it was very difficult because I had huge debates. And, and you know, growing mm-hmm. up in that opposition, it was almost unfathomable that anyone would not want Saddam to go, right? Saddam to us was like Hitler or like Stalin a mass murderer geno- who had committed, you know, acts of genocide. Um, and so looking back then, I very much thought that anyone could take get rid of him. This was largely the, the arguments of my father and, 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 and his colleagues and, and, and friends. But since then, going through university at that, you know, a, a year later or two years later, learning more and discuss- and, and also not just from the books, but also going to Iraq more and more uh, to 2003 and just seeing on the ground what actually was happening really, as I said, helped form the way that I sort of see things and, and analyze issues, politics, security, economics, society in the region. Mm-hmm. 
So because you work on, on Iraq, you also almost by definition work on the immediate and perhaps even wider region. So we're going to touch on a few countries today. But I wanted to begin by getting your take on claims that the Wagner Group is preparing to supply an air defense capability to Hezbollah in Lebanon via Syria, bearing in mind that details and information are scarce, of course. But, but do you think that there's any credibility to these reports? Well, certainly these reports coming out from either U.S. intelligence or other analysts are, are saying that. And we know in the past in the Wagner Group can be quite active across countries and, and does have the capability to support even local groups, Africa, but also we've seen in, in, in Syria. And so, you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to assess the extent to which all of this is correct, but, you know, it, it, it does seem ju- and, and, and that this falls into that model, which is a marriage of convenience that at the moment, the Wagner group and by extension, Russian foreign policy could be looking for these types of local allies. And so that, you know, that is important. But as I, I'm sure we will discuss, uh, it's, it's important to nuance and an extent to which what it could do in, in Lebanon and Syria vis-a-vis this ongoing and pretty big and potentially regional conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I ask you for your assessment on actually whether the tension between Israel and Lebanon it now feels like it's spinning out of control and perhaps moving beyond the tacit rules of engagement. It's been assumed that Hezbollah doesn't ultimately want to kind of risk the farm for the the Palestinians, but Lebanese civilians are being killed. Um, I'm thinking of those three little girls and their grandmother. But plus, we've just had this drone strike far beyond the border in inside Beirut, targeting a Hamas meeting. So the situation is starting to look a little less managed. So is this a dangerous moment? I think so. I think... This, to many, would seem to be a, a, let's say, local land dispute or dispute over land between Palestinians and Israelis, and, and certainly it is. But there is something, as, as you say, extending far across the borders of, 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 of you know, these countries. In the last little bit, you've had attacks in Syria with, with senior leaders killed in Syria. You had the attack that you mentioned in, in Lebanon. You've had attacks in Iraq, killing senior militia leaders. And so it very much is a local conflict that's spiraling into a regional one across borders. And I think that by nature is linked to the wider trends that we've seen, which are that these groups do operate across these borders and have both political, but also economic and ideological uh, connections across borders. And, you know, not to go back to the Wagner group, but, you know, I know this is the, the topic to, to some extent of the podcast and the Wagner group even shows how international this could go. Right. And, 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 and so, yes, it's a very critical local catastrophe that's happening, but it's also, you, you can see the cascades going, not just regionally, but globally. Yeah, it's sort of a reflection of, of the distribution of power, right, which is diffuse and which crosses boundaries and and which makes this a, a much harder conflict to contain. Yes, that's right. Certainly, we, you know, it just shows you that power doesn't stop at the border. You know, power can just cross and an authority can cross. And again, there's nuance. All of these groups, you know, Hezbollah in Lebanon is most interested in, in Lebanon. The Houthis in Yemen are most interested in, in governing inside Yemen. And, 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 and we can go on with the different groups. But 
for both ideological reasons, but also for power reasons, this is something that has captured their attention. And as you say, if there are also, you know, attacks that affect them at home, I think their populations would be expecting them to showcase some power in in, in the coming days and, and months. Do you think that there will be that sort of expectation within Iran, given that what the developing news that we're hearing today, as we record, there's been a massive strike inside Iran? Yes. So as we speak today, January 3rd, it's the anniversary of the U.S. killing of Iranian Revolutionary Guards Commander Qasem Soleimani, as well as the head of the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, Abu Mahdi Mohandis. So today there have been in many places across the region, memorial services for, you know, marking this anniversary. And in Iran, as, as, as you mentioned, there was an attack that's killed. It's hard to say now, but at over a hundred, it seems, which is a big, big move. Of course, from the Iranian perspective, it would be, you know, difficult to immediately link this to Israel. And I don't want to say anything that will date this podcast before it's even ended. But I think something important to note here is what retaliation actually looks like for these groups, right? Oftentimes we look for a tit for tat, right? So in this case, the Americans removed the most senior Iranian general Qasem Soleimani by killing him in 2000 and on this day in 2000. But, and everyone then was waiting to look at Iran's response and there was nothing, not much, right? A few rockets here and there. But in hindsight, now that we have, you know, several years hindsight, four years, if if my math is right, Iran is still there and Iran's networks are still operating and, and still quite influential. So retaliation isn't only the day after, which is what we expect, but what may come months and years after and, and the way in which these groups and Iran maintain their power in, in the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Nasrallah said yesterday, uh, the leader of Hezbollah, about the attack in Beirut, that this crime will never go unanswered and unpunished. But that kind of rhetoric is sort of to be expected now. But I wonder, with this attack in Iran and even inside Beirut, are these actors now beginning to kind of color outside of the lines? Yeah, that's a that, that that's an interesting way of putting it. Of course, you know, if you look at Nasrallah's stance in Syria, for example, during the Syrian civil war, Hezbollah was initially reluctant to go into Syria, at least in, in, in the initial years, and then eventually went in to, to support the regime of Bashar al-Assad and, and, and remain there with, with, with allies to the regime today. So yes, Hezbollah, its own existence is based on resistance to Israel and the removal of Israel from Lebanese territory. But since then, its identity has been this resistance. And it's a big rhetoric. It's very important for someone like Hassan Nasrallah to position himself as the leader of this resistance, not just, by the way, for, for, for Hezbollah and Lebanon, but certainly after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, as, as, as someone who can speak beyond Lebanon in any case on resistance, right? This is an Arab, a senior leader uh, in an Arab region who wants to be an, a leader of resistance, but what happens when his interests or, or his allies are directly attacked in his own backyard, in a position where he knows he can't go, you know, tit for tat. And, and, and this, is, this is not just the, the reality for all these armed groups, from the Houthis to, to, to Hezbollah, to the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, to even Iran, right? For attack against this, this army doesn't work. It's about how to manage and balance the longer term 
while also trying to play some to listen to, I guess, the, the people who are expecting and a more immediate response. Yeah, and I, I think that's when the multiple identities of many of these groups come into play, because from the Lebanese side, the Lebanese people don't want uh, another war with Israel, and they don't want to be drawn into the, the quagmire in Gaza. And yet, you know, there'll be pull factors from the Iranian side, uh, from the, you know, ostensibly Shia side of Hezbollah's identity that might sort of rewrite the equation for them, and therefore for Lebanon. Yeah, and also keep in mind that many of these groups are struggling domestically. In, in Lebanon, there have been multiple protest movements, including the big one in 2019 that was against the entire system, including Hezbollah. In Iraq, similarly, the same year, a big protest movement that we're calling for an end to the system, including these armed groups. And so many of these groups that are failing in their own governance and losing ideologies are looking for a cause. And this fits in, right? This becomes an important cause that could mask their own governance issues, their own local issues with their constituents. And so you're right, many of the Lebanese, you know, especially in Lebanon, where since 1970 in particular, you've had a big Palestinian population. And, you, and, and since then, the, the cause of Israel and Palestine has been interlinked and interwoven with Lebanon through Hezbollah. So certainly, Lebanese do not want to be sucked into that conflict, just like they didn't want to be sucked into the Syrian conflict before. But we'll have to see how long Nasrallah and, and Hezbollah will hold out. Yeah, well, particularly because of the war in Syria and, and the alliances forged by, by the Assad regime with Iran and Hezbollah on the one hand, but also Russia on the other, it's actually tempting to see that Assad axis as a monolith, right? But, but the relationship between Russia and Iran in Syria and in the immediate region has been marked as much by competition as cooperation, right? We, we, we should really uphold those distinctions. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, these are two powers in the region that are pursuing their own national interests. And when the, these interests meet, you have a marriage of convenience and you have a, uh, a, a connection. And the clear example of that was when the regime in Syria of Bashar al-Assad was on the brink of, of defeat and Iran's efforts weren't enough. And so in 2015, Russia came in with the Wagner group eventually and supported that fight against, you know, ISIS, but also against those who were seeking to bring down the Bashar al-Assad regime. But since then, Iran views this as its neighborhood and Iran is looking to maintain its authority across the region. And so there could be times and there will be times when, when these interests don't, you know, are, are not confined or are not, let's say, uh, do not converge, converge. So at the moment, going back to the initial discussion on, on Hezbollah and whether Russia is supporting its ability or it's, it's, it's wanting more air defense. In, in, in Lebanon, I think we often, we try and categorize groups as good and bad. And so there's just these bad actors, Russia, Iran, others. Yes, I mean, you could, but that's a bit superficial. And you do have big competition between Russia and, and Iran in parts of Syria, in Iraq, in others over who has most of its, of its interests met. 
And economic uh, rivalry, right? You know, the capture of the Syrian economy has been one of the main outcomes of these years of war and devastation. And and Iran and Russia sort of compete for, for reconstruction contracts and that sort of thing, don't they? Yeah, exactly. In, in, in Syria, but also in Iraq, right? Where Russia has tried to make a headway and, and Iran views Iraq on its border and, and a very lucrative country for, for Iran with its massive oil and gas reserves. So yeah, both in Syria and Iraq, you know, Iran says, you know, Russia did come in and played an important role at a time when it was needed. But right now, why are they still there? And they need, to, you know, the, these are contracts that, that Iran wants to compete for. And Russia, of course, having been there, having this mercenary model of driven economically and transactionally is looking for its own share of sp- spoils. And this is sort of showing the extent to which economics is important in conflict. Yeah. Well, what is Iran's role in Gaza, can I ask? Because to begin with, some Israeli media is convinced that Iran played a lead role in the October 7th attack. What's your view? I think connecting Iran to what's happening in Gaza by Israel is important because, as I say, it connects these bad actors. But it also leads the conversation to something else, which is not about 16-year blockade. It's not about some of the sort of daily struggles for Palestinians. And it's about, it's taking the agency autonomy out of Palestinians and saying Iran uh, is just doing this. And, and, and this is where, you know, we can discuss proxy and not proxy. But these are, if so, for Israel's perspective, it's easier to, of course, to blame Iran. Most people have now said that this, you know, what happened on October 7th, Hamas's attack that killed Israeli civilians was a did not have much Iran influence over it, and it was a very small circle within the military apparatus. But of course, more generally, Iran has used Hamas and has seen Hamas as a to some extent as part of the axis of resistance. But something important to keep in mind here, again, you know, we're talking about the transactional nature of these groups. Iran and Hamas were not together in Syria, right? So when the Syrian civil war, you know, erupts, Hamas is actually supporting Muslim Brotherhood and other opposition groups that want to bring down Bashar al-Assad, which who Iran is supporting. So, you know, if you want to categorize the axis of resistance, again, because it's not a monolith, Iran is much closer to, let's say, Hezbollah in Lebanon, or uh, some of the PMF groups in Iraq or Syria than it is to Hamas. But nonetheless, Hamas is still important to Iran for another reason, which is Iran as a Persian Shia country in an Arab Sunni region wants to, you you know, wants to use the Israel conflict, the resistance conflict as what connects it ideologically throughout the region. And in order to do that, it needs something like Hamas. It needs these powerful groups inside Palestine to support as part of its conflict with Israel. Mm -hmm. To have a seat at the table, right? Yeah, exactly. And then we know from Iraq, actually, just, you know, how convenient, but actually dangerous it is to kind of conflate bad people, as you put it. And since the October 7th attacks, which there was a pronounced element of surprise on the 7th of October, which did suggest a level of secrecy that entailed that maybe only very few people knew about it, as as we've discussed. But, you know, since those attacks, what do you think Iran's strategy is for the current conflict? 
I I always think of that line from Hamilton, I'm not standing still, I'm lying in wait. Is that what Iran's up to? I think that's part and parcel Iran's strategy in the region. The reason why often when Iran is hit, attacked, you know, as we've been discussing, it doesn't immediately retaliate as such is because to some extent it does have a longer term strategy and planning and end state in mind. It is careful in the way that it responds. So certainly immediately, actually, after the attacks on October 7th, as well as Israel's response on both Gaza and the West Bank, there was this concern that this could easily escalate. But what we saw from Iran was much more of a restraint from a, yes, we could have, you know, and, and there have been Iran's allies across the region that have launched missiles, but this is still, until now, very much still part of a logic of violence that we've seen for the last few years, in any case. These sort of airstrikes that attack in Syria or in, in Erbil, for example, what we've seen in, in the north of, in, in Kurdistan region of Iraq, in northern Iraq, or even in other parts. So Iran's strategy thus far is to maintain what is a equilibrium of violence where airstrikes uh, that don't kill many if any, but signal and message is a way to show strength, show force, but also to signal and message. So, and critically, through these allies to maintain a plausible deniability if anything goes wrong, right? So the reason why there are all of these groups instead of Iran as such is for that reason, that deniability. So what we're seeing thus far is that equilibrium violence, that logic of violence maintaining itself and not really an escalation from the side of Iran. Of course, on the other side, we have seen, as, as we've been discussing, major attacks in Lebanon and in Syria and in Iraq. And, and, and yes, it, you know, there have been more attacks by these groups in Iraq and, and in Syria. There have been certainly more missiles, but the damage and the, the casualties aren't thus far, you know, what one would expect for a sort of an, an escalation. But I think it's important to still note that anything, some, if something goes wrong, and that's where, you know, that's where the, the concern comes, the situation is very tense. And, and if something goes wrong, then that escalation will, will happen. Yeah, I wonder if all that careful kind of balancing will be blown out of the water with what happened mm. today. Yeah, we'll have to wait and uh, see. Yep. And speaking of, of that uh, kind of uptick, we've seen the Yemeni Houthi specifically jumping into the conflict with, with such energy and determination in the Red Sea. Um, so I wonder why they're doing that. Is this about the Houthi's dom domestic position within Yemen? Is it about the peace talks with Saudi Arabia? Are there orders from Tehran? Or is this kind of good old-fashioned solidarity with an oppressed people? I mean, I think it could be all of the above, certainly. I mean, the Houthis have, over the last few years, made considerable gains in trying to present themselves as a, as a state, um, using technological advancements, like drones and other military advancements, being very keen to present themselves as this. But also, you know, again, just like the other groups which we've discussed, facing some real domestic issues in governance and seeking foreign policy in this way or international relations in this way, in, in, in the Houthi way, to diverge attention. 
and to, yeah, put themselves on the front line in a way of this. So certainly it's about relevance. It's about legitimacy. It's about ideology, to some extent, ideology, right? And of course, to, to some, you can't deny the, that the Palestinian cause does attract and, and mean something to Arabs across the region, including those in Yemen. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, and in, in Iraq too, which, which I wanted to ask you about next, which, you know, Iraq is another frontline state where Iran linked Shia militia groups have been lobbing rockets, as you've described, at US military targets since October 7th. But they've even launched drones. But ultimately, the situation feels contained in Iraq for all the reasons that you pointed out. There's a sort of careful dance, the steps of which most people understand. But is all this activity therefore performative? Or are there elements in Iraq that really do want to avenge the civilians of Gaza? Again, all of the above or both are true. For Iraqis, it's a very special case in their own way because a lot of Iraqis people are against their current regime and they were against the Saddam Hussein regime before because of the governance issues, again, as we've been describing. And yet both regimes, Saddam Hussein became a champion of the Palestinian cause. And, you know, many of these groups, including the armed groups that are closely allied to Iran, the Shia groups, are also championing and, and looking to use the Palestinian cause for, for their legitimacy issues as well. And it's sort of low-hanging fruit, isn't it? Because it, it is such an emotive issue that people feel so strongly about because it is about justice and it's about, you know, values and humanitarianism. So overwhelmingly, you know, do you agree that the people of the region really support the Palestinians and that any government that goes against that has to do so carefully? Exactly. And it's about occupation, right? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. It's about occupation. It's about colonialism. I mean, there are these, these, these huge legacies uh, in Iraq and for other people across the, the region where, where, where in, in the way that they perceive the current conflict between you know, Israel and, and, and Palestine. So you have these armed groups that are looking to take advantage these are armed groups that have lost a lot of legitimacy because they haven't been able to provide electricity, basic services, and, and all of these basic human needs that Iraqis want. And yet looking to kind of overcome this legitimacy gap by saying, oh, no, but we are doing something bigger here. We want to be championing this big cause, which everyone cares a lot about. And part of doing that is by using violence, right? Violence in this case is, is being showcased for these groups to be put on that side to say we are fighting against this you know the israelis basically and we and, and therefore supporting palestinians and that's why i think we, we have seen this the question will come the extent to which these groups are as interested in in, in going to actually fight rather than just use instrumentalizing the the conflict in, in, in rhetoric and, and sending a few missiles and that kind of messaging, but not wanting to escalate because at the end of the day, and, and, you know, there are many of these armed groups in Iraq. Many of them are more interested in what happens in Iraq, just like we, when we were discussing Hezbollah in Lebanon or elsewhere, many of them want to instrumentalize the conflict for legitimacy so that they could maintain their authority in Iraq. And, and, and so their bigger battle is still in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And those Shia militia, they've become such a potent force, not just in Iraq, but in the region. And they're known to recruit young men from Pakistan and Afghanistan and possibly further afield to fight in the Middle East. 
these militia are highly ideologically charged, but there is a strong, a very strong undercurrent of poverty and exploitation. So do you see them as mercenaries? It's an interesting question because it kind of gets to the sort of heart of the debate of what is a mercenary, Mm -hmm. what is a proxy, what is a non-state armed group, what is a state armed group, right? And I think that often comes into, well, what are they, what what are the fighters motivated by? Yeah, in moral philosophy, that's the um, determining characteristic, yeah. Yeah, so we've been having this whole discussion on on these groups, on these so many different armed groups, these Shia, you know, militias across the region and 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 and, and non-Shia militias and armed groups, but more generally the access of resistance against sort of in support of Palestine, let's say. And you know, you you have to break them up, right? There will be within this the these networks uh and and and, and this massive web of armed groups, those that are economically inclined, those that do see economic opportunity in trade or in mili- you know taking advantage of conflict or military to go across the region. But of course, there will be those that are also inclined ideologically. That is to say that they don't even believe in the borders between Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. These are, these are countries that are constructed by the Brits, the French, and others. And so why should we even be discussing these borders, right? So this is, so there's an ideology there, and, and that becomes fascinating. And also there's politics, right? Some of these groups, they're more interested in governing the territory that they control. And when facing a legitimacy gap, would want to use the cause, but not go all the way over there and risk losing against their competitors. So within the economics, the ideologies, the, the politics, you have this sort of security triangle in which you could begin to categorize these groups. And I think when you do, you will find some that are mercenaries. These are fighters that could switch from one group to another group. Right. Well, that's the the rough test that I tend to use in my head is would they conceivably fight for a different cause or even the opposing side? Right. Uh, Or is there an overwhelmingly kind of emotional attachment to the cause that would prevent that? So that's very interesting that you raise that. Right. It's also a relief that by the end that I have met uh, your your test for for the the podcast. But yeah, so, you know, and and, and need hours and hours to go through each one of these groups and the fighters. Mm -hmm. But we have seen often in, in some cases groups changing names, fighters changing their affiliations, all of this, and they do have that economic. So you have, it's a bit of, for in, in, in most cases, it's a bit of all of these factors that I'm outlining, but in some cases you do have uh, certainly those that you could frame as, as economically inclined to and ideologically not, not as inclined, let's say. Mm-hmm. You were involved in the haunting and elegiac uh, BBC docuseries Once Upon a Time in Iraq, which tells the story of the Iraq war from multiple Western and Iraqi perspectives. And it drives home the violence and the futility of the war in equal measure. Taking that long view, do you see any parallels between Iraq and the war in Gaza and indeed the broader occupation of Palestine? I mean, definitely. I think 20 plus years since the US-led invasion of Iraq, there are important lessons of the way in which we understand conflict, the way in which we understand armed groups, but also the way in which we understand the narratives that are shaped and, and the ways in which people discuss 
conflict and, and violence. So the reason why we wanted to do something like Once Upon a Time in Iraq was that we felt that a lot of people's stories were not captured. What, you, what we've learned from one of the most important wars, I think, in our lifetime, certainly, came from whether, you know, the U.S. perspective or the perspective of Iraqi leaders or regional leaders, but it missed a lot of key people stories. And the people are often forgotten. And we know this across all of these wars. You know, we discuss the armed actors, we discuss the armed leaders, we discuss the political leaders. But what we often assume is that these leaders are representative of the voices of the societies in which they come from. And, and, and so why we wanted to do Once Upon a Time in Iraq was to say, okay, what does everyday life look like? for these people. And it doesn't even have to be Iraqis. It could be the American soldier who continues to struggle with PTSD because as a teenager, he went into the war. So the wars and violence impact so many different types of people in so many different ways. And you feel the impact of it, not just through violence as such, violence through military invasion and guns, but also through setting up political systems that kill. So in Iraq, a system of corruption that was set up, which meant that a lot of medicine could never be real or fit for consumption, and or health and safety standards of buildings, for example, Aren't maintained. So people are continuing to die as a legacy of decisions made. And so if you look back to 2003, there was this idea that the US, the strongest military in the world through guns could bring about democracy. And I think we're kind of over, you know, the, the, I think many people are over this idea that violence could somehow lead to democracy as such by intention. And it needs to be more to get to something like democracy. So looking at the conflicts across the region now, those are the questions we need to be asking. Are the voices of the people being heard? Are the systems that are being set up mediated to govern? Are they representative? Do they ensure basic needs? And so these lessons are not an afterthought or are not something for the next day because violence needs to end. Yes, violence needs to end. Yes, of course, you need a ceasefire. For example, in Gaza, definitely. But accountability needs to be ensured. And that's, some, that's, I think, the key lesson in Iraq. You could set up elections. You could set up constitutions. You could even set up all of these liberal democratic terms and concepts. But when you don't have rule of law, when you have peoples with impunity taking advantage of the populations, you will not have sustainable peace. Mm-hmm. And there, it feels like there are sort of direct parallels with the campaigns themselves. So we're seeing right now this sort of maximalist response with no exit strategy, which feels a lot like Iraq, no plan for the day after, um, no achievable political goals, an element of dehumanization that is leading to what feels like untold levels of civilian deaths, which will in turn lead to radicalization. And then just the undermining, perhaps, of the U.S. global position. Do you think the analogy can stretch that far in terms of the shape of the two campaigns? I think that's right. And if you look at history, history is not linear, but cyclical. And and you can go back through the years and find similar processes and similar things. And then people learn from it. But those lessons are never really taken. I think something quite interesting right now is not the Iraq war, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then the support of Ukraine by the defense of Ukraine, by Europe, the West being so recent 
where something like the bombing of a hospital and the way that it was defended and, and used in a way in, in Ukraine could be so different to the bombing debates around the bombing of a hospital in Gaza. So the international rules-based order, which is really important, had a lot of ideological weight in 2003 where the U.S. was fighting for democracy and removing dictators. It then creeped up again, of course, to defend Ukraine against, against Russia's invasion. And again, there was this sense that good guys versus bad guys, right? But what the Israel-Palestine conflict is, is, is showing is the incoherence, but also the contradictions in that rules-based orders and, and leaving many people in the region to question who is the good guy anymore and who is the bad guy. Mm, maybe it's not so much the contradictions within the rule-based order, but the uneven application of its its central tenets. Yes, that's exactly it. And so you have a lot of people questioning, is it because we're Arab that we get this uneven application versus others? But certainly, I think you're exactly right that we need to reflect and we need to look at history. We need to look at how what war and conflict with no end in sight, with no end state, without ensuring accountability from the day one, what that could lead to. Because these issues of radicalization, these issues of uneven development will only mean that this region will continue to be in conflict, in perpetual conflict, sadly. And also the massive balance of power shifts uh, that are unintended. So all of the stuff that we spoke about at the top of the program, especially, you know, all these militia and the way all this kind of intermingling of causes and boundaries, you know, a major driver all of that was the Iraq war. And it was the massive change in the balance of power that favored Iran and then, you know, has led to this uh, kind of labyrinthine governance situation that we have now. It's a direct outcome of 2003, would you agree? No, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, the unintended consequences of removing 2003 Saddam Hussein was installing a government in Iraq that increasingly became very close to Iran. Many of Iraq's opposition actually uh, were based in Iran. And I'm not just talking about, you know, of course, the Shia groups, but also the Kurdish groups that would then come. So Iran had such strong connections to Iraq's new, new elites that would come around 2003. And that allowed, I mean, Iraq has become an important, a vital country for Iran, not just because it's a, uh, it creates a buffer in a way where it could have these armed groups that, you know, Iran could go after the U.S., not in Iran, but in Iraq, for example. So that's an important buffer, but also economically. At a time when Iran is being so heavily sanctioned, Iraq's hundred or so billion dollars in revenue each year is so important to have access to. And more broadly than that, Iraq becomes, for Iran, a channel into not just global financial markets, but also to diplomacy. So when you look at Iran's mediation, eventual, the deal with Saudi Arabia, that was all initially brokered through the talks in Baghdad, right? Baghdad remains this area, the city where you have Americans, Iranians, Russians, and, and everyone in one place. And so that's why it has the potential to be a place where you could have brokerage. But because it's so un perpetually unstable, it becomes more what, what we're discussing, which is the unintended consequences of creating spaces where you don't have public authority that could ensure stability, accountability, rule of law. And, you know, the lessons are that it's guns alone won't bring democracy or even stability in the long run. Mm -hmm. 
The chief of the IDF, speaking of guns, said last week that he expects the war in Gaza to last many more months, which is an extraordinary projection given the devastation that has already been wrought. Do you think that that's realistic? And if the war on Gazans does thunder on, does spillover become inevitable? I mean, just the last couple of days, we've seen quite, you know, unprecedented events. Yeah, I mean, there are people who could speak more to Israel's domestic policy and sort of what this war, what the attack meant, but also why prolonging this war is important for for Israel's government, both from Benjamin Netanyahu's embarrassment and need to become this war leader and prolong his government. And, And so I won't get into that, but I will answer the question, which is important, which is, We know that the longer violence continues, the more you have people die, the more you have potential of radicalization, the more you have devastation, which is why most humanitarian organizations, most people with an interest in saving human lives have been demanding a ceasefire. Because every day that this continues, every day that Israel's offensive continues, for the reasons that it wants it to continue, sure, I mean, it creates devastation unfathomable to an unfathomable extent to many people in Palestine and across the borders. And then there are big questions that are left unanswered. What to do after, what, what the next, you know, the day after looks like. What does reconstruction even look like? What does bringing in medical systems to help people who will need it, essentials, basic life. I mean, it's certainly, the longer it continues, the more devastating, even more devastating that this will be and human rights just abused. Yeah, it is hard to imagine how this level of destruction and extent of the deaths of of children and infants and, and the proliferation of famine, how all this can make anyone safer. But, you know, to that exact point, do you think that we're going to see spillover? I hate to put you on the spot, but you know, we've seen the bombing today inside Iran. Is it conceivable that Iran would retaliate, you know, meaningfully? As we've been discussing, Iran, it depends how Iran frames this and who it blames for the attack. You know, of course, in the past, is you know, Israelis have assassinated Iranians inside Iran, but we'll have to wait and see how this is framed. But as I said, even when Iran's most senior general, Qasem Soleimani, was killed by the Americans on this day today, four years ago. Everyone's expecting Iran to immediately retaliate. But Iran doesn't win at the tit for tat. Iran doesn't win in the direct, sort of immediate violence. Iran certainly will have to act in a way to show defense, but it'll also make a calculation to some extent. And I don't want to say that Iran is perfect and strategic and all-knowing, but it certainly has proven on on time and time again to have a bit more of a longer-term project, how to use its violence and when to use its violence. And I think if, you know, we'll have to see, but I would say that that's probably what we should expect from from this too. So not a, historically that would mean not an immediate massive attack on Israel or engaging in a direct conflict with Israel, but maintaining and increasing its power in in the region and using the access of resistance as its main tool. Mm -hmm. The pressure points. Yeah. Renad Mansour, thank you for reminding us that framing is destiny and for joining us on the Guns for Hire podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation. 
And as ever, thank you for listening. This 10th episode marks the end of the first season of the podcast. I hope to be back soon for a second run. Perhaps you'll click subscribe or leave a review to help make that happen. In the meantime, the last 10 episodes have shown us that mercenaries can use their cash windfalls to spread conflict, as in Darfur, that they've added major value for belligerent parties on the front lines of war, as in Libya, the CAR, or Ukraine, that they can challenge and reshape their own polities, as in Russia and Sudan, and that they aren't going anywhere. Thanks again for listening. The Guns for Hire podcast was a production of the Atlantic Council's North Africa Initiative. It was written and hosted by me, Ali Abrahimi. Audio editing was by Milos Brochetta, and the music was by Hiatus. Goodbye. <laughs>